we are going to start today reading from Isaiah 42. Just to kind of frame the message, it's not going to be like an exegesis through this. I just kind of want to frame a couple things for you kind of as we begin. Uh, And this is what it says. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I give glory to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Isaiah 42 is the first of what's known as the servant songs. Uh, a suffering servant is, is one who is to come, whose mission is to bring forth justice to the nations. That's, that's his purpose, that's his mission, that's what he's coming for. And he will set the example for the rest of creation. So throughout the Old Testament, primarily uh, in the case of Israel, the things that always stood in the way of God doing what he wanted to do through them, it was typically idols. God himself uh, performed miracle after miracle after miracle uh, to show them that he's the real deal, to show them this is who I am, I'm the real deal, I'm the real God, and yet they kept missing what he was actually doing because they kept turning to all of these other gods that couldn't do anything at all. So in Exodus 10, when God gives uh, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are given, and most of you are familiar with this now after sitting under our teaching for just a little while, but the Ten Commandments are actually what the Hebrew people call the ten-worded ketubah. Uh, the literal is the ten words. It's a ten-worded ketubah. And what a ketubah is, is it's a marriage contract. It's actually a huge shift, though, when you begin to think about them that way and you begin to look at them that way. Uh, But it makes total sense when you think about it. Like, what's the first commandment? The first commandment is, um, God says, uh, you have no gods before me, right? In this marriage, I have to come first. In this marriage, I'm first. What comes next? Don't have idols, right? No idols. In other words, this is an exclusive relationship. This is just you and me, nobody else. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So every single week we have a date night, basically. We have a time where it's just you and it's me and nobody else. And it's just we're focused on each other and we're doing our thing. So when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and he came down with the Ten Commandments, they weren't intended to be a bunch of impossible rules that Israel would never be able to follow. They were intended to be the terms of a marriage between God and these people whom he loved so much that he set them apart for a mission. And even propose to them. Now the mission of God. Genesis 
in Genesis 1, it's to be fruitful and multiply, to spread the image of God, to bear the image of God to the world, to show people what God looks like. And God committed himself to Israel and God provided for Israel everything that they needed and he came alongside of them in that mission. Again, he proposed to them. That's what the Ten Commandments were. But that's why in Jeremiah, because of course they don't, Israel doesn't keep the covenant, uh, God actually issues them a certificate of divorce. He issues them that. He says, you guys are constantly unfaithful. I'm going to issue you a certificate of divorce. But then in Jeremiah 31... He gives them a new covenant. So it's like, okay, we'll end the old covenant, but I'm going to give the same people a new covenant, not like the old one. It it actually says that um, there it says, I'm going to give them a new covenant, not like the old one, which they broke even though I was their husband. That's what it says in Jeremiah 31. If if you're questioning that concept of the the marriage and the ketubah, it makes it very clear right there. So fast forward to the Last Supper. And Jesus is having a Passover Seder, a Seder meal with his disciples. And uh, when he gets to the third cup of Passover, known as the cup of redemption, he takes it and he renames this cup and he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. Basically saying, Jeremiah 31 is now. I am the new covenant. Because just as Isaiah 42 says, what we read at the beginning, God is doing a new thing. He's doing it through Jesus Christ. Now, the writer Paul later would write Colossians And in Colossians, he calls Jesus something called the icon. He says Jesus is, the way we translate it is Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's the Greek word icon. An icon is always something that points to God. It points away from himself to God, right? So the image of the invisible God. In other words, when people look to Jesus, and when they see Jesus, they finally have a flesh and blood understanding, an image of what God truly looks like. They can look that they can look at Jesus and they can say, that's what God is like. That's what God is like. That's him. And I, I can't help but wonder if Israel had such a hard time accepting the terms of their marriage because they could never really quite see what God was like in that way. He kept trying to show, he revealed himself in all these different ways, but they couldn't see it. So for example, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to get the the tablets in the first place, the people begin to think he's not coming back at all. They had this promise. He said, I'm going to go get it. I'm coming back down. But he took a really long time and they got really anxious. They got eager and they they couldn't see anything else happening. So what they did was they they actually, um, they saw the leaders gone. So they actually took their own gold rings and their earrings and they molded them together and they created this golden calf. And then they started worshiping this golden calf saying, this is the gods, these are the gods who brought us out of Egypt, which is really, really an abomination because in the ketubah, the very first thing that God says is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. First thing to remember is before I give you any rules, as you may call them, first I give you grace. I brought you out. Yet they're here worshiping this other idol saying, you're the one that brought us out. So finally Moses comes down. And he has these tablets with him, this marriage covenant from God with him. And he sees what Israel has done. And he sees that they're worshiping this stupid calf thing that they'd crafted. And Moses is so angry about what he sees that he takes the Ten Commandments. He takes the ketubah and he smashes them into a million pieces. Pieces that can never be put back together again. Now this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. 
Because it, it demonstrates the heart of God. It's like this raw emotion piece about God. He, he gets mad, right? God gets mad and then Moses has to plead with God and say, Moses, don't destroy Israel. They're, they're your people. And God's like, oh yeah, you're right. I shouldn't destroy them. They are my people. But then Moses himself, he's so mad that he smashes the commandments himself. He's like, you guys are awful. Then God... In all of his grace and mercy, he does not magically piece the tablets back together, even though he's God and he could have done that if he wanted to. Instead, he just gives them the Ten Commandments again. He says, here they are again. I'll do it again. We'll do the exact same thing all over again. He proposed again. And when they break it again, he forgives them. They break it again. He forgives them. And finally, when he issues that certificate of divorce, he says, you know what? Let's just do it this way. He gives them a new covenant. He says, I know y'all can't keep this thing, but I'm going to send someone who can. And that was his plan all along. But as, as these different images, these icons, right, come of Jesus, he said, I'm going to give you one final icon that truly shows you just who I am and just what I am like. Jesus is the icon. So a couple of years ago, I was taking our kids to school. I was driving our kids to school. And I was pulling out of our street. We live on Ferdinand, just a few blocks down. And I was pulling out of our street, and there was a ton of traffic in the morning. And it was one of those days where the, there was so much traffic, it was backed up from the light, it was backed up like four blocks. And have you ever seen it happen where you're, you're trying to pull onto like a street like that, and there's, the light backs up traffic, so somebody thinks, I'm going to be nice, and I'm going to leave a space for you to pull out. So you can pull through and make your left turn if you're not going right. And so somebody did that. They were so kind to leave a space for me. So I'm, I'm in this car, and I'm, I'm pulling out, I'm in our van, and I'm pulling out, thinking I'm going to go straight, or I'm going to turn left, or whatever, and I start to ease out, and I saw another car coming, um, going through the light, but there's still a couple blocks away, and I'm thinking, okay, I can just floor it and make it, and I totally miscalculated how fast they were going, and I pulled out, and I, I guess I couldn't see very well, and they just T-boned us. They T-boned our van. Uh, and again, I was taking our kids to school. I had all four kids in the car with me, including our baby who had been born just like a couple months before that. Just, she was a young baby. And then Millie, who we had just moved to like a normal booster seat, so she didn't have the big seat anymore. She was right where the car got hit. Now, luckily uh, for us, even though the, the van was totaled, by the grace of God, all the kids walked away unharmed from the accident. The, uh, the, some of the teenagers in the other car actually had to go, home, go to the hospital in an ambulance. And for months and months and months, it might have been a whole year after that, and sometimes it even kind of creeps back in today. But for months and months, as I'd pull up to that spot, I would refuse to go left at that spot. Maybe, there, maybe, maybe, maybe I would do it if there was like no cars at all coming, but for the moment, I wouldn't do that term. I would always go right and circle all the way around the block. Sometimes I would go several blocks out of my way to get to where I'm trying to go so I could avoid doing that turn. Now, this particular spot was highly traumatic, but it was on the street that I live, and I live on a one-way street, so I cannot avoid seeing this every single day of my life. I have to go to the spot. I have to face this, this spot. I have to face this corner. There's no avoiding it. But that instance that took place, that event, it shaped my mornings, taking my girls to school for a very long time as I had to relive the daily routine of what that was, of taking them in and um, 
and then having to relive that image. So I often did that inconvenient thing, the thing that took longer every single day rather than just face the reality that you're not supposed to get into car accidents. That's not the thing that happens normal. Normally you pull out and everything is fine. You just have to calculate it right. But something about that shaped me. It it just did. I, I learned something that I had to remain mindful of, yet unlearn all at the same time. Because I severely debilitated my ability to function in that space that I had previously functioned in every single day. So we began this series um, by talking about a Hebrew phrase, uh, tikkun olam. It means to fix the world, to repair the world. And we talked about the Greek's concept of the word kairos. Kairos, as a bit of a recap, is a word for time, but it's not time on a clock. That's chronos. It's, like a me- it's not measurable time. It's kairos is a moment. So the Greeks called it an opportune time opposing the fate of man. So for example, Paul uses the word in Galatians 6-9 when he says, let us not grow weary of doing good. One of my favorite verses. For in due season, season is kairos, we will reap if we do not give up. So he's saying in, in Kairos, we finally will reap. A moment will come in which we reap the harvest that we believed would come forever and have, we've lived our lives trusting that it will eventually come. Paul says that moment will come if you're faithful to do the things that God has put in your hand to do. It'll come. Thomas Merton wrote a book many years ago called Faith and Violence. And in it, he, he grapples with the Christian call to love the world and to serve the world and the contradiction that is so many of them embracing violence and war and um, just methods that seem to not be the way of Jesus and trying to reconcile that with their faith and how they manage to do that. And that today is, it's still the world we live in. It's completely the world we live in. But in this chapter on religion and race in the United States, he begins by talking about Kairos. And he talks about how every generation kind of has that moment. They have that kairos moment. He calls it a time of urgent and providential decision. I like that. I like his definition. A time of urgent and providential decision. A moment that changes other moments. And in light of the Christian response at that time to the Vietnam War and even their response to the Civil Rights Movement, He pleads with Christians, find your kairos. Then he gives an even more thought-provoking question when he asks, kind of theoretically, he asks this question. He says, is it possible that when the majority of Christians become aware that the time has come for a decisive and urgent commitment, the time has, in fact, already run out? And as I was reading that, I began thinking about that picture the Greeks had of Kairos. See, the the way that the Greeks picture Kairos is he's a man who has wings on his back, he has a dagger in his hand, he's moving forward, uh, but um, he has hair on the front of his head, super weird picture, I know, but he's bald on the back of his head. And they said that he was bald on the back of his head because when the opportunity is in front of you, you can grab that thing by the hair. But you have to grab it because if you don't and you wait until after it passes, there's nothing to grab hold of anymore. That makes sense? It's the back of his head and it's bald. And and when I think about our world today and the fight that we're up against, I mean, just, you know, we could list things all day long, the racial injustice that still stands really quite 
dominantly, the, uh, the unborn, who, they never even get a chance to live in the first place. The children separated from their parents when they cross a border into a country that they were told would be the promise of a better life. A life worth risking everything to get to and then they get there and it's not anything like they thought. The socioeconomic complications of a world that is literally designed to keep a certain few people on top at the expense of many others. Like these, this is the world that we live in. Even locally in our city, you can think of some of the issues like the family squatting in the abandoned house on your block, trying desperately to keep that baby warm in that three-degree February chill who has no access to heat. Or our neighbors who we talked about in the first message getting a knock on their door and it's the government and it tells them, you get to stay, you get to stay, you get to stay, but you guys have to go. And half the family gets sent back to their country and their family's separated But all the while, many of us, we just sort of live, right, in this cookie-cutter world of our own where we go to church. We check the box each week or for many of us for once a month or whatever the number is these days. And then we go and we face the injustices of the world and we pretend like they do not even exist because we have our own problems. And we have our own drama and we have our own pain and our own brokenness and our own heartbreak. We have our own families to sort out our own kids to feed, our own kids to raise. And by the time that we actually remember that the world is bigger than ourselves and that we were actually put here to tikkun olam, we were put here to fix the world, the opportunity to do so may have passed us with no hair to grab hold of anymore. As it just leaves us kind of in the distance as the world just continues to fall apart. And for most of us, we then take a hapless attempt at grabbing it. We already know it's gone, but we're like, oh, we'll just at least act like we're trying. We'll take that, that chance and we realize it's too late to make any real change. And then we'll go back to our sheltered lives pretending another opportunity won't present itself tomorrow. Another chance to fix the world won't come when there's going to be a million chances that are just going to pass us by. And we're going to just keep doing the same thing if we don't get out of that habit. Because it's much easier to face the pain, to to numb the pain, than it is to face it. You know, most people realized that growing up. They they realized in their their relationships, it's easier to figure out ways to not feel pain than it is to overcome pain. It's much easier for us to go about as if it doesn't exist or as if it has no effect on your life than it is to make the sacrifice to actually help another person maybe get ahead. And I can't help but think have we missed our kairos? And to some degree, I would say yes. Many, many opportunities, they've come and they've gone and they've come and they've gone and the church has stood back and watched. But there's a reason for it. There's a reason we do this. Like most people, right? When I first got saved, many of you probably have like a radical Jesus saved. I've been saved my whole life for the most part, but like I had some rededication moments. Like I'm the guy who had to get saved a few times when I was growing up. And I got, you know, once I got saved and radically saved, I became a fireball, like most of us probably have. I mean, I remember being a teenager. I remember that day where I like took all my CD collection and dumped it in the trash. I was that guy. I'm like, now I'm like, give me back my CDs, garbage man. But back then I was like, yeah, I don't need them. Um, And and then I was like, I did that. And then I'd be like, all right, no, that's, let's go witness. And I'd knock on doors and i start witnessing and trying to tell people about Jesus at the doorstep of their, their own houses. Like, I was that guy. I had passion. But I didn't have anything else together but passion. But when you knock on a door and someone comes out and screams their lungs out at you, that sucks a little bit of that passion out of you. 
When you try and share about Jesus and someone schools you on how uneducated you are and leaves, you, leaves it so you leave that conversation limping, you aren't real eager to go and do it again. And the point of saying all that is this. In life, sometimes we break. We get hurt. Whatever it is that happens, something takes place and it kills a piece of our heart or it drains a little bit of our passion and it impacts the way that we do the next thing and the next thing. Just like how I got in that car accident, I'm like, I'm never turning this way again. So I take the lawn way for the rest of my life. And our experiences, they begin to shape us into people who we often would say, we're never going to be that person. But yet we start to become that person. But the patterns of this world have taught us how to build patterns for our lives. And one day, you're going to look in the mirror. I hope not, but for a lot of us, we do. We look in the mirror, and we think, I'm everything I said I wouldn't be. I'm just like my father. For some of us, that's a bad thing. Some of it's a good thing. Or I'm just like the person that I swore I'd never be. So there's this phrase in the Bible that I believe is pretty misunderstood uh, that I want to help sort out a little bit today, and it's the concept of the sins of the father. Talking about how something stays in a family. Like the idea that sin just connects itself to a family and then gets passed down from father to son. See, that's what we think of when we think of that phrase. We think that's what it means. We think that, okay, that father was an adulterer, so that means the son's going to be an adulterer. The father was an alcoholic. Automatically, the son will have a spirit of alcoholism in him, and he will naturally have to fight against being an alcoholic. That's, that's kind of the way we teach that, and that's kind of how it's understood. So we think it means. But actually, that would be if it, if it were the sins of the father. But the actual word there is the word avon. It's actually the iniquity of the father. And that actually changes things a lot when you actually understand what iniquity is. It's very, very significant. Significant. An iniquity and a transgression are two very different things. See, an iniquity is an inward motivation. It is motivational. It's what you're driven by. It's what you want to do. Where a transgression is what you actually do. It's an outward action you take against someone. It's, it's so significant when, 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 um, when pointing ahead to Jesus, the, the prophet Isaiah says that Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions because he was literally, he was physically outwardly pierced. He paid an outer physical price for the things we've outwardly done, the things we've followed through on, for the times we transgressed against others. But it says he was bruised for our iniquity. A bruise is under your skin. A bruise is an internal thing. He paid an internal price for the things that we were motivated to do whether we did those things or not. But remember what we read at the beginning. A bruised reed, he will not break. A faintly burning candle, he will not quench. If there is even a little hope, then he will not snuff it out. And Jesus Christ died on the cross for those iniquities, and he has come to bring justice to the world. He's come to make right the things that have been broken. But watch this. I've shown you this word picture before, but I want you to see it again in context of this concept. It's the word avon. Uh, it's three pictures. It's the picture of an eye, it's the picture of a hook, and a picture that looks like tiny fish or a seed. It represents life or multiplication. So this is the way that they, the ancient world would write the word iniquity. Uh, so the, the ancient concept of it, you, you read it backwards, is that whatever your eye hooks to multiplies. 
Or whatever your eye hooks to reproduces or it comes alive. It, it manifests itself. It, it has life. It, it's bound to happen eventually if you give way to it enough in your mind. Now, the Bible says that it's the iniquity of the father that is passed down to the children. But it's not some mystical transferring of the things that are in the father's mind. And it's not the sinful action of the father that magically just define who their child becomes. It's because the father, right, he lives every day in his home fostering iniquities right in front of his kids. The inward motivations that we have, whatever your eye hooks to multiplies, begins to translate into your attitudes you teach your kids. Cultures that we're creating right in front of them, in our homes. Standards that they're growing up thinking are normal. So if your father's a racist, and your entire growing up was filled with racist, racist slurs and unjust prejudices and jokes and making light of things in your home, you may have some unlearning to do when it comes to race. But it's not because some magical racist spirit magically jumped from him into you. It's because you spent your whole life being made comfortable with something that you should not be comfortable with. So of course, we shouldn't be surprised when we begin to see those things multiplying in the lives of those who come after us. It's all they've ever seen. I've seen elements of this already to some degree in our own kids. Like if they hear me yell, you start to hear them yell more. If, if Don and I argue in front of them, it won't be long before we see them arguing because that's made normal to them. And so when they get a little older and they find out, oh, anger is not normal to act that way, now you have to unlearn it or that becomes who you are. And quite frankly, it's a whole lot easier to just become that when it's all you've ever known. But it's very significant. The Bible does not say that your transgressions are passed down to your children. It's not saying that because you commit some awful sin, your children are now innately going to do the same things. They might be more prone to do the same things because it's the culture you set for them. But the culture you demonstrate for your children will teach them what is right and what is wrong. And whatever your eye hooks to will multiply. So if they see it enough in you, they're going to have to work hard to not have that same fruit be in their lives. Because every single, every single thing that you do in life has an impact. So in uh, Bessel van der, Kolk's, uh, van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, he talks about giving his trauma patients the Rorschach test. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, what they do is they have their participants look through a series of pictures, images that are seemingly insignificant blots of ink on a piece of paper, and then what they would do is they would observe the mental images that each person would then form as they see the ink. He explains in his book how because humans are meaning-making creatures, we tend to create forms when we see it. Images and even stories out of what we see on the page. So in the test, the second card is always the first one that has color. There's a, black, a couple of blotches of red in it. And for those who have experienced something traumatic like death, particularly military type of things, uh, it's a huge trigger for them. Like they're in a huge battle and they see this, they've watched their friend be killed. So they tend to revert to those moments when they see that ink blot. And they're reminded of those stories. In fact, what they did was they took 21 war veterans who all went through that. Uh, and, 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 and Van der Kolk took them through the, the, these, these cards. And 16 of these 21 people 
said that when they saw that, they began to describe somebody that they had witnessed be killed. They had a name for the person. It was, they, they knew him by name. They knew the trauma that had happened. They, knew, they said, this is this part of their body. That's literally what they said. But the other five said absolutely nothing at all. So you either, you either revert back to something ridiculously dark in your life or you revert to nothing. You went blank. They went blank. And he said that they went blank. They said, it's just a bunch of ink. So where the majority superimposed trauma onto the page, the others had lost their ability to imagine anything at all. And as the author puts it, without imagination, there's no hope. No chance to envision a better future. No place to go. No goal to reach. Now, we are not trauma experts. And we would never claim to be. So I'm not going to spend any more time on this study, but if you want to re- I would recommend reading the book if you would like to learn more about that. But we have experienced some things, and we have seen the way that those things have changed us, and the way that those things have impacted us, and the way that those things have shaped our world. So we can speak to that. And we have studied a lot, and have at least a bit of an understanding of humanity and our interactions with the fallen world. So we can speak to that. Because when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the, of the, when they ate the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, their eyes were opened. Okay? When they ate the fruit, their eyes were opened to a world in which now, now they see the world, and now they see it for how broken it is. That's why nothing, if you, if you read that story carefully, you notice very quickly that nothing physically changed for them in the garden. Yet suddenly they felt shame that they were naked. They were always naked. But suddenly when this happens, something triggers in them and now they feel shame for it. Now they've seen and realized that the other person is naked and suddenly they know what that must mean for me so they covered themselves and they hid. And ever since that day, what's been happening is we've been making judgments about circumstances and about other people and those judgments have shaped the way that we see and interact with the world. The mission of God was given to them. From the very beginning, it was be fruitful, multiply the image of God, create things, help God bring chaos into order. And since that day, when people see chaos, which for some, that's all they ever see, they don't know what to do with it. That's the meaning of the cross. The world spiraled into disarray. And they continued to see each other, not for the image of God, but for what is chaos and what's wrong with each other. And that justifies war. That justifies harming other people. You have to first see someone else and believe that you are more valuable than they are or that they deserve some sort of punishment and you don't deserve that. You have to begin to see somebody in that way before you can ever justify hurting them. And God, he had to turn that whole thing on his head. That's what the gospel is all about. He had to turn the whole thing on, his, on its head by sending his only son the only person who ever lived who didn't deserve anything bad to happen to him, who lived perfectly to demonstrate that the world ultimately will be won by love. That's the gospel. Jesus died, even though he didn't deserve it, for you who did deserve it. But remember what Paul says in Colossians. He says Jesus is the icon. He is the image of love that has always been true all throughout history. See, when, when God looked at Israel and their golden calf and the ketubah that had been smashed into a million pieces, he didn't see an end. He saw a story that was worth working at. 
and continuing to work for. He saw a future that could be better than, how, than that day, how that particular day went for them. He had hope. He did not count their trespasses against them. When Israel continued to break the ketubah again and again, God finally said, I'll give you a certificate of divorce, but along with that, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And this one's going to be better. Because I know you can't keep that one. You never could. Abraham couldn't. You can't. None of them can. But Jesus can. And when Jesus died for the world, and he literally died for the ones killing him, he asked God to forgive them as they were doing it. He did not count the very lashes that they beat against his body against them in the very moment that they were doing it. And now when Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, says to the church, he says, here, you have the ministry of reconciliation. Go. Go reconcile people back to God. What does he say? He says, do it. Don't count their trespasses against them. You, church, you're the icon. You are the icon now. You are the image of Jesus Christ to the world that needs him so badly now. See, today needs to mark a shift in this series as we begin to kind of turn things upward because depression is real, anxiety is real, pain is real, suffering is real, but wholeness is also real. And rest is also real. And mission is also real. And at some point we have got to get there. But in order for us to get there, I want us to kind of flip the question a little bit. You know, I thought about putting up that image of the ink to do the test on the screen and asking you what you saw. But I, I realized some people would be really kind of stirred by that, depending on what life had done to them and where they, where they, what they've seen, maybe even harmed by it. So I decided not to do it. But then I said, what if we put this image up instead? What do you see? What do you see when you see a picture of our church? And as people who understand that we're called to live for others every single day, an even better question would be, what do the people who aren't here yet see? When people see our church. Or let's just start by saying it this way. When people see an image of any church, what do they see? What do you see? I remember there's a couple once that came to our church service one time they visited they found us on the web they were really excited to come and they came and they loved the service uh, then the, the husband reached out asked to meet with me and, and I said sure we, we met and he came in he said I don't know what to do he said I'm so sorry I, we loved your church my wife loved the service I loved it but this building he said this old church building just reminded her so much of such a dark time in her life growing up in such a super traditional church that was all about rules and all that. And even though maybe its motivations had been good, it was actually really oppressive. And she said, I can't sit there. It's like, I love it, but I can't sit there. And the thing is, as we really begin to grasp who we were created to be, like as image bearers of the Almighty, we will begin to realize that as we begin to shape our lives around the model of Jesus Christ our Lord, we become something bigger than that. We should be something bigger than somebody walking into a building and feeling something about a building because we're actually a body of people and we cannot be limited to four walls. It cannot be limited to the walls around your minds. You become an icon, an image bearer of the Almighty. 
And as we become more and more like Jesus in our hearts, automatically we're going to become more and more like Jesus in practice. So when we see an injustice, we we won't look upon it with indifference anymore. We won't shrug our shoulders and just be like, nah, there's not much we can do about that. No, we will do something. And when And when the people who we help pick back up, when they've fallen, and maybe they're so far from Christ, but you come and you find them and you pick them up right where they are, and maybe they have no clue what it even looks like, they have no clue who Jesus is, then may they say something like this. I don't know what Jesus looks like, but I bet he looks something like that. They'd be right. Because you have the image to You have the image-bearing ability. You have the ability to bear the image of Christ. You have the ability to live and breathe the love of Jesus Christ to a world that is far from him and yet so desperate for him. You know, God did not give up on Israel. He didn't give up on his disciples, even though only one of them followed him to the, he was even there with him when he died. One of them denied, one of them denied him three times. One of them betrayed him. We can't give up on people. But we have to change the way that we see the world if we're going to change the way that the world sees the church. The mission of our church, and most of you know this by now because I've said it till I'm blue in the face and I'm going to keep saying it, the mission of our church will never be to fill the pews with people. I love it when people come. I wish more people would come. I pour my heart out into these things and I work really hard on them and so does she and so does our entire teaching team. We all work really, really hard on this. We, we do that because we believe that this space is a training ground and it always will be a training ground and it's always really great to come together in community, do life together, go out afterwards for meals, do that whole thing. Learn from each other. Study the word of God and experience how God is moving on this side, but more so how he can empower us to go to the other side and be beyond our walls. That's what this space is. It's a training ground for something even more sacred that takes place when we leave this place. That's why we use the pews from the church for the as the benches for the reconciliation table. I've always loved this picture. It's just a picture of Brian just leaving the church with the pew of the table and heading to the table because the church belongs out there. And when people walk by that table and they aren't sure if they can come in and sit down or not, and then somebody from our community yells to them, hey, come on in. You can come in. You can sit down. Oh, and it's actually open anytime you want. You can come to this table and sit anytime you need. And if you need somebody to talk to and nobody's outside, just knock on the door of the Courage House. Just knock. If someone's home, we'll come out. We'll talk to you. We'll hear you. We'll pray for you if you want it. We won't if you want, if you don't. We'll help you if we can. That's the type of presence that we want to have in this neighborhood. And that's the type of presence we want to have in all the future neighborhoods as we build more communities and continue this mission forward. And, and when, when they sit at that table and they sit on that porch or whatever it is, my prayer is that they think to themselves, I'm not sure what heaven is like, but I'm sure it's something like this. I'm not sure what Jesus is like, but I bet he's something like this. You sit with them, and you don't count their trespasses against them, just like how God regave the Ten Commandments and how Jesus died for the people who were killing him. That's what it means to be an icon. And when all the broken pieces that make up the church come together in unity around the most important call of all, we become the most powerful agent of change on planet Earth. We become the reflection of the greatest love the world has ever seen. A selfless love. A changeless love. A love that knows no bounds. A love that holds the world together even when it feels 
like it's all falling apart. Thank you, Jesus. It is well. We're so grateful, God, that you're sorting it out. You're making us whole. And you're making us more valuable, more beautiful than before we were ever even broken. That you're the only one that can restore us, and you do it so beautifully. We love you, Jesus. We're so grateful. That you're using us to show the world who you are and about your love. Even though we mess it up, we're here. We're available. And we're ready to bear your image so that you, God, can be restored in the earth. That your love, your wholeness, and your truth can be restored. Thank you, Jesus, that you've done that in our lives. We love you. This room, when I used to, when we first started here, I remember the first time I walked into it. And I still come here often to just be alone with God because this room takes my breath away. This room was designed to represent so many things about who God is. But to me, it represents a majesty and a stillness and a mystery of the structure like how do the curves work like that and it still holds up the ceiling and how does the light come through the window and there's just so much mystery and majesty in this room and it doesn't it doesn't get it perfect but it still represents who God is and some people have been hurt by that and it represents what they've experienced in this building maybe particularly or buildings just like it it kind of almost doesn't even come close. And guys, I don't, I don't think we're any different than that. We don't come even close to representing the love of God, to representing who God really, really, truly is. We can't. We can't do it. We can't really even be a microcosm who he is, a mini tiny version. We miss so much of it. But he doesn't care. It doesn't matter to him how close we get. What matters to him is that he can every day take us a little closer and he can show through the little pieces of our lives, the little broken pieces. He can make something beautiful out of whatever it is that you are, that you think you are, that you're probably not quite that. That through your trauma, you've been convinced. You don't bear the image of God. I want you to tell that voice to shut up. And I want you to get up off the floor. I want you to stand confident that God is doing something in you. 
Second Corinthians 5.20 says that it, right after he talks about reconciliation, as though God is making an appeal through us. It's a lot of pressure. But when we look at Romans, guys, I mean, we've studied this as a church. If you haven't heard the series, we're still moving through it. We'll come back to it. But Romans 1, 18, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They weren't bearing the image of God. They were so far from what God designed for them to be. They were futile in their speculations, in their minds. They were foolish and their hearts were darkened. And they exchanged the glory of God, of an incorruptible God. That glory, it's the image that we bear of God and we exchange it. We exchange first the truth about who God is for a lie. And when we believe that lie, then our hearts and our minds become infected with that lie. And then we become that. We have to repair that. We have to reconcile that back to not what we've become, but what we believe about God. And I'm telling you this place, this space, this Sunday morning space, it is to remember to connect with God through worship to speak to God through prayer, and to hear of and understand who God is through the message, through the sermon, through the Bible study, through the reading of the word, and then to declare it through this communion that we take and amongst each other and in the community with each other. This space is not just a space for repentance and getting right with God and salvation. This space is to restore how we see who God is. And when we see who that is, our hearts change. And when our hearts change, our lives change. We have to stop trying to fix the thing we're doing and fix the thing we're looking at. And then we can become, for the world who's not looking at who God is, they can see what God's doing in their lives and they can see a glimpse just a little bit of who God is. And I hope that people look at your life and what you've become after you're in this place and they see and they say, whatever that little shiny little fleck of glitter that I just saw in you, I want to know who that is. I want to know what that is. Because I'm telling you, these people out there might never come into this building and we're okay with that because we know we can take what we experience here and we can start to become that and demonstrate that. We are called to bear the image of who God is. And when we do that, we make an appeal to the world about who he is, that he has good. If your life doesn't appeal for God, you got to just look to him. Just spend some time. If you want to come into this place and you just want to stand in this room in the majesty and the quietness of what it is, we can open it. You can stand here and you can take in who God is. I hope you have that space in your world. Life is chaotic in my home. I have four little girls and we're home a lot and we're still under construction. It's chaos. 
If you need to come to a place, talk to me. Let's, let's meet up. Let's remember who God is. If this time on Sunday morning isn't enough, because it's not, let's meet up. Let's be here together. Come to the table and see what it looks like when people bear the image of God. See how it feels. There's wholeness and there's goodness. We have to restore how we see him. He wants to reconcile the whole world and he's making an appeal for you. And he loves you and he doesn't, it doesn't matter that you're not going to get it right. You're going to get closer and then further and then closer and then further and then closer and further and soon before you know it, you're dancing with the Trinity. And it's beautiful and he loves it. And then people want to join in. You're dancing, I want to dance. And it's magical and it's majesty and it's not perfect, but it's something to represent God. And he has a lot of joy when you do it. <laughs>